Hello friends, welcome to another episode of Green Shoots, the sustainability podcast. I have my partner in crime, Atul. Atul, how are you doing today? And what do you think of the response? And wasn't it mind-blowing the number of reactions and downloads? This, by the way, also filled me uh, with lots of hope that uh, we all will learn wonderful things together. Now, absolutely, I was amazed by the number of downloads. Uh, that was really good, and the topics that they wanted us to cover. A lot of suggestions on that. Who should be the next guest on the podcast? Really, really overwhelming, and so many good wishes. Thanks a lot. Please keep supporting us. It's a growing podcast in a growing sector, and we really want you to be a part of it. So, thank you. In this episode, we continue our discussion with Shravan. There are two big questions that we answer. The first is a deep dive into the startups in sustainability sector. So we carry on from what we learned in the first episode. The second part is really interesting. We answer the question that many of you asked: How can I live sustainably? So stay till the end, and Shravan has some really interesting and easy to follow steps. which will help you live a sustainable life briefly introducing shravan once again shravan is a veteran in the field of sustainability and startups and his current organization sima provides holistic support to sustainability startups helping them scale and grow you spoke about how you are playing that role of taking startups from a small to a medium sized organization and that is a very valid point shravan because the more i'm trying to understand the space the more i realize that the many startups here don't seem to be growing in impact and scope at times they get fanatical about their mission as well and lose the business objective to switch from a small size startup to an impactful size 100% and see that's why when you ask me what's my definition of sustainability for me ability to scale is critical if you don't have an ability to scale you still haven't got a solution in place so i think one of the other problems that we face at least in indian context is price plays such as outweigh metric in our minds to say that whether a solution is adopted or not so we're always fighting against price if you're looking at a mass scale thing yes the best solution is if you're able to get a 100% solution of what you want to achieve while it's also affordable we have to be a bit realistic on where exactly we can draw the line the other thing is that you know if we don't get adoption coming into the picture you don't get this interest from other people wanting to shift and change people are not able to touch and feel a product but if even if because if i can do that that creates demand so for me it's pretty critical that you have to get out there with some product in place that people are able to consume and use i can see the side of the innovator why they will not be interested to do that because we very often you know we can we'll say that you know oh it only does so much that would be the argument which comes into the picture that they're not going far far enough you know that's the nature of us also comparing what's happening in other parts of the world where places which have better purchasing parity and uh, they're able to build full fledged solutions in place but because of the nature of how we need to create adoption here you can easily point out and say that you know this solution is like a 50% solution or something in germany it's very obvious like it's very likely that that innovators thought of what that 100% solution is like but they are constrained in terms of adoption and it's largely a price i think the price and some parts a convenience thing like that ease of adoption overcoming the inertia part of it this fanatical point that you mentioned yeah it's it's a it's a very fair point because a lot of people who come into the space are driven by either a need to solve a problem they've seen a lot of times 
the very passion oriented people who actually come to the picture in place now i think what's interesting at least at least i believe is that you need to kind of pair that with a person who can sort of provide okay this is what you're good at in really evangelizing product you know the whole technology aspect you, that you need a counterbalance to something to make market adoption grow because the really key thing to really do is that you need to start getting products out there slowly but again another caveat is that you need to have good quality products and that's where also we've had a lot of failures like we've had sustainable products and they're just not aesthetically useful they don't not as functional as it could be i remember i think around 2009 my dad uh he brought this solar powered torch and it plugged into his little tiny solar panel it was cute but it was ugly and it did not have enough throw and effect but it was a gimmick you know it was like oh this is a solar powered torch this is so cool but it didn't do its job and i think that's one of the things that as a sustainability product we have had a lot to actually overcome the idea of a sustainable product is a compromised product that's where we really need to um you know demonstrate and show that a sustainable product is as good as any product which is out there and that's a big battle to deal with so that's why it may be more useful for an organization to say that i'm going to start with a semi at least a solution which doesn't go 100% of the way it goes 50% of the way because i can get more products out but then i think that's where the case of evangelizing talking about it and really having to be vocal about things is pretty effective but you're going to have to be vocal about the substance you can't be vocal about fluff and we get a lot of that as well that's very brutally put shravan but i completely agree with you and uh, uh, your story of torch brings back some of my own memories when i was trying to switch to more sustainable products in my own household two three products that i remember number one soaps uh, number two deodorants the experience was okay with soap but the packaging was not and it was it was a lot of plastic for for a sustainable product and the deo was not really a good product so i completely understand the compromise product point that you made and shravan the whole point you made about compromise is something which we have discussed as well while some customers will accommodate a compromise product but uh, where will a family with two kids office job other commitments fit a compromise product in their lifestyle that's a really good point actually yeah. shravan you are meeting new startups on a daily basis which of these models are really working well are there secrets to success that can be emulated ha ah, that's a very interesting question i think so i I'll, i'll i'll take in a bit of a slightly different model in case so th- there's one i think one place where we've seen a lot of adoption for solutions is what i call compliance plus companies and what i mean by compliance plus companies is once that you know there is a kind of legislation which comes in and it makes a demand for a particular type of solution to come which is sort of sustainable so it'll be like no plastic waste or it will be something like the energy conservation building code which requires you to get a more energy efficient product in place compliance plus companies are ones that they don't just look to give a product which just suits that compliance mandate in place but they have the ability to do a lot more but where they get interesting is that because a company which has this compliance need to find a new solution they then have the ability to kind of look at and say that can i look at a solution which does more than just meet compliance and i think those have actually thrived quite interestingly in my point of view I think a key area that where I've seen that is at least in the waste space where it's really picking up more very very driven by compliance demands and needs and we're, but we're getting to the level that we're getting people who are trying to base uh, but the level of registration basically says a lot of it around plastics for example is around 
you just need to ensure that you're able to take back whatever you bring to the market and give it to either recycling or energy recovery. Energy recovery is like one of the more common areas goes into place because there's only there's not many things you can recycle effectively. But we're getting to this level that you know companies are trying to figure out and say that what can I do more with the product? Can I make a recycled plastic product as good as what it was before? And they're getting a lot of demand. We kind of keep having this back and forth about how compliance picks up and grows. Uh, I can definitely point out like in things around waste and stuff like that, both electronic, plastic waste and all that. These are very interesting areas where I've seen like companies have been able to leverage this very well because there's also visibility play for them. And when you look at the grand scheme of things, there is a level of them able to do that pay priority for them to actually afford things in place. Compliance Plus is a great name for the model, Shravan. And it makes intuitive sense because while the beginning is through legislation, but the product does more than just meet the minimum requirement. The EV space is very interesting. I think it's probably the largest, other than say, for example, a home, it's the largest uh, product that you as an individual can demonstrate and showcase that you're actually being uh, a most sustainable approach. But it's very nascent and it's a, it's a very small pocket. I think I read somewhere that only about 8 lakh EVs of all types, even rickshaws and everything, which is the largest largest seller, it's only 8 lakhs of them being sold in a com- country which sells about, I think, 20 million vehicles a year. It's a very tiny amount. But the thing is, there's a lot of interest and demand there because I think EVs picked up in a very interesting way. It wasn't necessarily compliance-based. It was people basically identifying and seeing an opportunity. I think the most important thing, at least from a model perspective, is, and it sounds very simplistic, but you need cash flow. And companies are able to deliver and provide like cash flow based models in place. They are doing, they are very effective. They're pretty useful. So we're seeing this thing that, you know, companies coming with hardware and tying it to the subscription model in place. Groceries and stuff like that is a very low hanging fruit, but I'm also hearing about it happening in B2B equipment places as well. Like, especially when it's related to giving it at, um, say, for, you know, agriculture and areas like that where buying a product outright is difficult. So, you're able to tie in this ability of greater affordability. It's linked to maybe revenue and, you know, stuff like that. That's a, where this is really effective is that it overcomes that inertia of basically saying that, okay, it's very difficult for me to buy the product outright and, you know, utilize it, effect, uh, you know, just utilize it just like that. No mistaken, I think it was Lithium. It's a EV company. They, I think, pioneered a pay-as-you-go model, if I'm not mistaken, where you just pay for as, as per the mileage of how it picks up and grows. So, you're finding this thing that, you know, the models are really interesting, I think, and it's still a very nascent and small scale because for us in sustainability, solar and EVs, I mean, renewables dominate, like 100% renewables dominate. And their adoption today is really dependent a lot around policy. And that's how it is because that's really the bigger driver. If you look at from a market standpoint perspective, I think it's ones which are actually able to figure out a way wherein it makes adoption, at least testing of a solution easy. That's where it's really, you know, becoming really, really interesting. And I actually know a couple of people are working on stuff around asset financing as a, a very key way to actually make that adoption more accessible because you are now getting supported to actually buy a product, which today, which previously your only option would be you have to pay the entire thing in cash and you're not likely to get any sort of financing for it. So again, it comes down to the whole financing argument in place. So I think it's, it's quite one of the things I'm finding most interesting is that it's uh, this kind of like ecosystem building around these products. It's not like just a person who's trying to say that, okay, I'm getting a product from A to B. But then there's another person who comes, says that, okay, how can I make it more affordable for the buyer to buy the product? Is it a financing solution? Is it 
you know, a different model of how it's adopted? Is it a service-based thing which I convert from a product? That's a great point, Shravan. I was reading about this uh, case study of a bike startup in the US and their sales dramatically changed after they moved to a subscription model of $49 instead of an upfront payment of $2,000 for the bike. This channel financing is very similar to that. Now tell me, who else is doing what you are doing? Is there competition in this sector? Where is everybody else in the value chain? I'll be honest, I think the space is small enough. Everyone is just helping everyone else right now. That's where it comes across. Uh, there is a good understanding coming up that, you know, fund, giving funding is not enough. Now, that's what I kind of said that, you know, it's more like you end up working in collaboration and partnership with others because it's such a wide area that you're looking at that you're basically targeting a specific niche area and focus in place. So take us, for example, one thing which we're doing around the climate space with uh, a part, uh, with one partner. We are targeting this area about market, initial market access and um, some initial financing in place. I'm reliant on programs around incubators and other programs that are doing a lot more early stage identification thing and product validation part. And I'm then also going to be dependent on sort of growth stage funding and those sort of support platforms to take in and probably, you know, take things in place. I'm reliant on accelerators as, you know, a pipeline to really take to a larger scale. There is a nice proliferation of funds coming in who are aware that, you know, there is an interesting thing to do things uh, differently. So as a couple, those are like, um, so the Speciali Invest, which is they invested in ultraviolet. They've done some really interesting investments around the water space mm. and stuff yeah. like that. Oh, and you have a couple like uh, 42.bc, Thea Ventures, a few of these funds which are coming up. And I think where I find them very interesting is that you're finding people ready to take a punt and a bet on areas, uh, in especially in the climate space, which is not stuff we've really been used to, which is mainly means outside of EVs and outside of uh, renewable space. And what I find interesting about their focus is that, you know, they are aware that, you know, you just can't do a solution on its own. You need a support system in place. But then the support system is not really, you know, one entity or they can build it out. Everyone is basically having to kind of build it out together with different people. But you kind of are owning a niche and saying that, okay, this is the area that I'm looking at. This is the area I'm looking at in place. But I think one of the things that has to be kind of relooked at for sure is this blind adoption at times from other forms of, you know, venture growth, mainly from a uh, tech and SaaS perspective, like a three-month acceleration program is not effective enough because the climate or the sustainability solution that comes in within three months, you need to show some tangible growth and it's acceleration. It probably means you've got a new customer. You've been able to access some people in place and all that. So they, that for me, I think is not much. I don't, I haven't seen much of that in place anyway, but those are the ones which I feel it needs to kind of be addressed a bit more. Those those structures have to shift because uh, you need long-term support. And it goes back to this whole thing that a lot of innovators are product and technology people and they need a good amount of support and hand-holding to be able to not just like to be able to just understand what it takes to build out a business side of the ops and things in place. And yes, to help these companies succeed, we have to enable channels for them to reach out to end consumers. How can retailers become part of the sustainability agenda? I think the most interesting role retailers have goes back to what I kind of point out as the main issue we have to tackle, which is this whole thing about sustainable lifestyles. How do you make a sustainable lifestyle attractive? Because retailers get the, have the ability to influence consumer behavior. 
retailers understand incentives best they understand what exactly are you know drivers for change and stuff like that most effectively and for me that's the role i can't see many other players actually defining effectively because if i'm accustomed to going to a store day in day out regularly on such a regular basis and i start seeing like the availability of what i have in place the sort of messaging which is there in the store conveying this sustainable model in place i have the ability to be influenced significantly and one of the most important things definitely is that you know we get a lot of awareness about issues in place awareness of things that have to be done that awareness has to be backed up with tools and solutions that allow me to uh, effect that change like i cannot be made aware about the fact i should not be made aware about the fact that you know i should go organic or i should not use plastic i should use not use packaging you know stuff like that but if i don't also have the ways to practice that then that's a that's a gap in the market and i think that's where retailers are super critical because we have more than enough forms of awareness out there we don't have more, enough forms of people to be able to demonstrate that awareness and say that okay i i know how to practice this thing i'm hearing about and it's accessible to me so for me this is where like i i you know uh, retailers for me have like been i think are such a linchpin in their ability to influence people and that's why i i do find them absolutely critical in uh, trying to you know create that shift which you really need got it so that is where rubber hits the road and this is the place to influence shopper behavior which will improve the entire value chain exactly see because um, when a person gets influenced and their perspective changes they don't just look at it and say that i saw you know one product which is sustainable and i picked it up and that's it a person start looking at their entire lifestyle and saying that what are the different ways i can start tackling it because this largely about three or four key things which goes into a sustainable lifestyle how i eat the sort of energy consumption i use what sort of materials i use and how i travel and obviously where i live there's only about four or five things in place now the moment for example i target something like food and we're able to make an intervention with something that is very close to people and it's very personal because you are consuming and ingesting something in place and the moment you're able to do that a person will start thinking and saying that okay how do i translate that to how i live the sort of energy that i'm drawing from how i travel and stuff like that it's it's not i don't think it's too much of a surprise at times that you'll see a lot of these very environmentally friend, pro environment people are vegans and vegetarians and stuff like that because food is like probably one of the first ways in which they are made aware of the idea of a sustainable lifestyle and where they can actually effect a change which is very important so for me that's where it it's a it's it's like a catalyst which is which can be created if one thing kind of sparks something it slowly starts taking the series of decisions to say that i can do it in this way i can do it in this way i can do it in this way and i think that's that's where it's that that strength is really there from a retail perspective to conclude the discussion what advice would you give to a person who is planning to shift to a sustainable lifestyle for example uh, while a lot of us have taken little step but there's a lot of confusion uh, around what to use for example should we use glass or should we use plastic how do i even solve that conundrum one is i think people don't have to punish themselves too much uh, i think that's an important thing in place um a lot of this is you're changing behavior behaviors are hard to change and a lot of people who have the capacity to change have at minimum at least maybe 25 30 years old that means they have 25 30 years of experience of living or maybe even some bias 
which informs how you live. And if you want to suddenly shift and say, you know, how that I want to live sustainably, you can't be hard on yourself. You have to accept the fact that it's going to be incremental. It's going to take a bit of time to grow and, you know, increase and basically start seeing the effects happening. Like, you need, that's why, you know, this whole idea, I go back to this whole thing about small wins. They're very effective. They're very important because you have to celebrate the fact that you're doing positive things. The one day that, you know, for example, you you buy a plastic bottle accidentally, you're very thirsty, and then you have to go somewhere, you buy a bisleri bottle, then you come back. Don't punish yourself about the fact that you bought it for that one day. You've had to do it. You haven't got the choice. But, you know, kind of focus it more on the fact that, okay, this is one blip in a more consistent way that you want to shift towards. And I think that's kind of important. To this point of the glass bottling, that's like at the crux of, you know, what is more important. I don't know. If, it's very easy to make enemies with that part. I can tell you that. There's a camp of people who basically say plastics is more important because today microplastics and everything affect your health. But then if it has a detriment from, say, like we were talking about, you know, certain types of packaging have a higher carbon footprint, am I then a contributor to this larger scale thing? I don't, unfortunately, I don't really have a good answer for this part because it's again very dependent on the lens you have to look at. Like, you don't have to look at like that entire activity being entirely zero impact and unsustainable, which is not possible. But what you can do is you can basically look at another activity to kind of offset whatever you've created here. So, it's, uh, think of it as like a personalized, so we use this, you know, we use like, life, uh, like a life cycle impact as like a tool to kind of identify and say, these are all the environmental impacts about something in place. Certain aspects are going to have positive impacts in, if you do a particular activity. Certain other activities are going to have other positive and negative impacts. But if you look at it as a holistic thing, then, you know, you may actually find out that you're having a net benefit ultimately in place. If I'm using, you know, a glass bottle continuously in place and I'm guilty about having to, you know, keep reusing it over and over again. Take a cycle to travel around. Don't use a car. Don't use a bike. So in this way, don't look at it as a series of individual activities. Think of it as a wider lifestyle. More than anything, it then allows you to say that, A, I'm able to practice this on multiple levels, which is very good. I think the last key thing is that you're not, you're not putting too much on yourself to say that I have to be perfect because no way that you're not having zero impact. Never. That's not possible. You are always having some sort of negative impact just to the degree at which you're able to mitigate it. And it doesn't have to be done by just a single activity. So this is what I would uh, basically tell people. Don't punish yourself. You don't have to. That's very comforting, Shravan. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is half the things I say to myself to make myself feel better. So probably I'm just passing it on to you. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much, Shravan. It was another extremely enlightening episode. I'm sure we will get you back once again with something even more interesting and engaging. Really, really nice to have a conversation. I really enjoyed it. So thanks a lot. And now a message for our listeners. Thank you so much for subscribing to this podcast. You can reach us at hello.beanshoots at gmail.com. If you want to follow Shravan, he's available on LinkedIn as Shravan Shankar. He also writes extensively on Substack. You can follow his articles on The Big Green Picture and The Climate Finance Initiative. You will find us again on the next episode with another topic and another interesting guest. See you soon.